Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I want to tell you about just one day of Trump's Washington. April 30th, 2018. Nine top executives from T-Mobile check into the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., with their names on a list of VIP arrivals. They arrive in Washington at a critical moment. Just the day before, the company had shared some big news. T-Mobile and Sprint announcing yesterday they sealed a blockbuster merger agreement. T-Mobile is set to buy Sprint for a whopping $26 billion. To complete the deal, the company needs approval from the Justice Department, one block away from the Trump Hotel. Hanging out in the lobby in his trademark hot pink and black T-Mobile hoodie, CEO John Ledger is instantly recognizable to hotel guests. He and the other execs aren't just patronizing the president's hotel. They're advertising they're doing so. The same evening, Ledger checks in. In a closed-door suite just off the hotel lobby, more lobbying is going on. <laughs> a small group of political donors is dining with the President of the United States. So they have a, a method that you shut down a truck? So every truck now well, is on an e-log. The guests include a steel magnate who complains to the President about rules limiting the number of hours truckers can be on the road. A property developer who suggests holding the next summit with Kim Jong-un at a site he'd built near Seoul. But if you would consider Songdo... Also in the mix. Two then-obscure businessmen, Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas. They'd secured an invite to the dinner after promising a $325,000 donation to America First Action, a Trump-aligned super PAC. They also have something they want from the president. We're in the process of purchasing an energy company in Ukraine right now that should help. They think the U.S. ambassador in Kyiv, Marie Ivanovich, stands in their way. we got to get rid of the ambassador. It's, she's still left over from the Clinton administration. Where the ambassador? Where, Ukraine? Yeah, and she's basically walking around telling everybody, wait, he's going to get impeached, uh, just wait. Like me. This is a fabrication. Trump's reaction is strong. Get rid of her. Get her out tomorrow. Okay, get her out tomorrow. Take her out, okay? Excellent. Do it. Make a note. It took a year, but Trump did get rid of her. The other person staying at the hotel that night? T-Mobile's John Ledger? After all of T-Mobile's spending at the Trump Hotel was ferreted out by the Washington Post, Ledger tweeted he trusted regulators to make their decision based on the benefits it will bring to the U.S., not based on hotel choices. When the regulators did make their decision, Ledger got what he wanted, too. It is now official, a federal judge approving the merger between T-Mobile and Sprint. It rejects an argument from a group of states that said the deal would violate antitrust laws and raise prices. You're looking at uh, Sprint stock now up about 64% on that. is Trump, Inc. I'm Andrea Bernstein. I'm Ilya Meritz. It's our last episode before the final day of voting. 
for four years, Andrea and I have been reporting on how Donald Trump is profiting from the presidency, the way his family profits, the way people in his administration might profit, the way a whole specifically Trumpian industry of access has grown up around the president. The snapshot Andrea gave is not unusual. It shows what's happened to our government, because as T-Mobile gets its merger, as two businessmen sideline an ambassador, the government itself is increasingly a tool of private interests, not the public interest. This past summer, our friends at New York Magazine came to us, and they asked if we wanted to help create a list of people, sort of a who's who of individuals who've profited in some way from Trump being in the White House. It's a stunning list, and you can find it in the current issue of New York Magazine. Any one of the entries from the list might have derailed a previous administration. As we were putting together the list, something really came into focus for us. The story of corruption in the Trump administration isn't just about individual people or their actions. It's about how Trump's way of doing business has pervaded our entire democracy. That's the story we're telling today. It's like a four-year experiment in what happens when you don't refrigerate your leftovers. In these conditions, a lot of mold can bloom. So today on the show, a triptych. The cabinet secretary, who was business partners with China while negotiating a trade deal with the Chinese. The lawyer, who's done more than any single person to keep the president's business records, the key to understanding his conflicts, out of view. The third story is about the president himself and the way he's wielded his constitutional prerogative to pardon and commute criminal sentences. It's his most monarchical power to make problems disappear and tell allies, I can protect you. Trump Inc. reporter Meg Kramer starts us off. Act one, tone at the top. There was a moment right before Trump became president that we at Trump Inc. talk about all the time. To be here today at President-elect Trump's request. It was when Sherry Dillon, one of Trump's lawyers, walked out in front of a group of journalists and Trump supporters to announce that President-elect Trump had a plan to separate himself from his business. He directed me and my colleagues at the law firm Morgan Lewis and Bacchius to design a structure for his business empire that would completely isolate him from the management of the company. Trump was not going to sell his assets or put them in a blind trust like past presidents. Dylan made it clear. He didn't have to. He's voluntarily taking this on. The conflicts of interest laws simply do not apply to the president or the vice president, and they are not required to separate themselves from their financial assets. Instead, she said Trump would hand over management of the business to his eldest sons, which meant Trump would still have a financial stake in what happened to his company. Divesting, Sherry Dillon said, would be unfair to Trump. President-elect Trump should not be expected to destroy the company he built. This plan offers a suitable alternative to address the concerns of the American people. This plan is one that allows the president to funnel taxpayer money directly into his business whenever he visits his properties. Over the last four years, we have seen so many consequences flow from this moment when Trump said he would not disentangle himself from his financial interests. 
Inside Trump Inc., we sometimes refer to it as the original sin of the Trump presidency. I'm just going to get my... You want me to hold up the recorder now? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, we're good. This is Dan Alexander. He's a reporter at Forbes. I called him up because I have been thinking about one consequence of Trump's decision not to divest. And that is the message it sends to the people who work in his administration. Dan has been reporting on one cabinet official in particular who has a lot of power and a lot of complicated financial interests, who failed to separate those interests from his work for the government. Can you start by telling me who was Wilbur Ross before he joined the Trump administration or what was his reputation? So Wilbur Ross well, the industrial part of the economy was known as a private equity billionaire the population. who wasn't afraid to go into complicated situations and into kind of rough-and-tumble industries. Uh, you know, coal, steel, stuff that's got, you know, dirt under the fingernails. The millennials are not spending at the same rate. Dan says that one of Ross's specialties was negotiating complex bankruptcies. This brought him into contact with Trump in the early 90s. When investors wanted to take over Trump's struggling Atlantic City casinos, Ross helped convince them to keep Trump involved. And when Trump then says that he's going to run for president, he starts making some declarations about why he believes that Trump's trade policy is really, really smart. He also hosts fundraisers for Trump and sort of, you know, is a big backer. And then after Trump wins, you know, he receives one of the first appointments to be Secretary of Commerce. The Commerce Secretary oversees everything from trade to the National Weather Service to the census. It is not a flashy position. It is a powerful one. You know, like Trump, Ross had all of these business entanglements when he stepped into the role. What's supposed to happen in that process when someone goes from working in private industry to being a cabinet official? What are the rules for separating yourself from your business? Yeah, so the first thing is you have to tell everyone what you own. And that sort of gives people a sense of what it is that you have and where there might be potential conflicts. And then the next thing that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to divest everything. So Trump does not legally have to do this because the criminal conflicts of interest statute doesn't apply to the president, but it does apply to the secretary of commerce. So Wilbur Ross then has to sell off everything in his portfolio that could overlap with his responsibilities as Secretary of Commerce. And he doesn't have to do it right away. You've got, you know, a little bit of a grace period, so you can do it over several months. And you're making the promise that is, you know, hey, I'm going to stay away from anything that could be related to my own financial interests in that intervening period. Uh, Did he stick to that promise? No, he did not. Just to give you one example... He didn't disclose one of his holdings in a rail car company called Greenbrier. But then not only did he not disclose it, but then he held a meeting with the CEO of Greenbrier in the basement of the White House when the Greenbrier CEO was in town to talk about government matters. And there's some ethics officials who think that even if you just take the meeting, that's already a crime. But certainly if you act upon any business things that you learn in the meeting, that's a crime. Wilbur Ross says that they didn't talk about business, that that was a purely social meeting. But that wasn't the only meeting. You know, he met with uh, the CEO of Chevron when his wife still held a large interest in Chevron. And for purposes of the law, if his wife holds 
an interest in a company. It's the same thing as if he owns an interest in a company. He's just as vulnerable from a legal perspective. And there are other meetings. You know, he meets with the CEO of Boeing. And at that time, you know, again, his wife holds what looks like a multi-million dollar stake in Boeing. We can see the calendars. We can see that they're talking business. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of the appearance of a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And I think what some of your reporting on Wilbur Ross shows is that it is almost impossible to know, based on publicly available records, whether or not he is truly conflicted, because it involves knowing what his intent is. I mean, in many yeah, ways, the appearance of a conflict of interest is the best indicator that we have. Yeah, well, you can't get inside somebody's head. You know, I mean, unless Wilbur Ross says, yeah, I changed his policy because I own millions of dollars worth of Chevron stock, but that's not going to happen, you know? And uh, the reason that the laws are set up so that then you have to divest at the start is so that then nobody has to wonder. It seems like another issue here is the limits of disclosures. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example of that. So, you know, Wilbur Ross on his filings discloses that he has an interest in something, and I'm not going to remember the exact name of it, but it's something like DSSAIV4, okay? (laughs) Now, that entity holds a company called Diamond S Shipping. What the disclosures don't say is that another one of the big investors in Diamond S Shipping is the government of China. So you have the Secretary of Commerce who comes in to negotiate trade deals on behalf of the United States. And he is business partners with the government of China while he's in that position. And he doesn't have to disclose that on his federal ethics filings. You know, by contrast, if somebody does pay you $202, you do have to disclose that if they pay it to you directly. What does Wilbur Ross have to say about all of this? Not much about the uh, meetings that he held. They've taken the general position that, you know, he hasn't violated any laws. You know, he failed to disclose not just the Greenbrier holding, but several other things that he owned as well. I mean, and some of this wasn't minor stuff, you know, like he um, said that he had divested all of his stake in his former employer, which is called Invesco. And he later ended up admitting that he actually still held on to more than $10 million of Invesco stock. That's not a, that's not a small amount of money. Their position on those issues are that he just didn't realize that he owned them. Democratic lawmakers wrote to the Inspector General of the Commerce Department, asking for an investigation into Ross's conflicts of interest. A spokesperson there told us that the matter is still under review. Ross has divested his stake in Invesco and entities that held diamond dust shipping. Do you think the rules around divestment are different under Trump than in past administrations? Well, the rules aren't different. (laughs) Um, You know, the rules are pretty clear. If you are in the executive branch and you're not the president or you're not the vice president, then you have to get rid of stuff that could pose a conflict. Now, in previous administrations, the president and vice president have acted like those rules applied to them anyways, even though they don't. And that sets an example. You know, I mean, if you look at like any corporate structure, you know, people talk about tone at the top. You know, what's the example that the CEO is setting? And people will follow that example. You talk to people who've worked in the Office of Government Ethics, and they point to the fact that, you know, they always knew that they could count on if some 
person in the administration who wasn't doing exactly what they wanted. They could place one call to the Oval Office, and that person somewhere in some department would be whipped into shape in about 15 minutes. And they can't place that call anymore. In Trump's administration, taking meetings that you have a personal stake in, forgetting to divest $10 million in stock, failing to disclose your holdings, none of these things disqualify you from holding one of the most powerful positions in government. Dan Alexander is a reporter at Forbes and author of the book White House, Inc., How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. Act two, the Fifth Avenue example. The middle panel of this triptych is a portrait of someone you probably don't know, but who is very, very important to the president, attorney William Consovoy. As the Wilbur Ross story shows us, so many conflicts sprung from Trump's decision not to separate himself from his company. Understanding the full extent of those conflicts, that's been nearly impossible because we haven't seen Trump's tax returns and other business records. Keeping them away from scrutiny is Consovoy's job. If you have heard of William Consovoy, it's likely because of an exchange that took place in a Manhattan courtroom in October of 2019. There's a hearing call that the white-columned Thurgood Marshall Courthouse in Manhattan. It's before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Good morning. You may be seated. The Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr., suspecting criminal fraud, has been trying to get Trump's tax returns. Trump sued to block the subpoena. He lost, and his lawyer appealed. But your, your position, as you said a moment ago, is that the immunity is absolute. In court, lawyer William Consovoy argues for a novel concept. Absolutely. Temporary absolute immunity. Absolutely, yes. Judge Denny Chan asked Consovoy if the president would still have temporary absolute immunity if, say, he shot someone on Fifth Avenue. I think it has to. And what's your view on, on the, the Fifth Avenue example? Local authorities couldn't investigate. They couldn't do anything about it. I, I think once the, a president is uh, removed from office, the lo- any local authority. This is not a permanent immunity. Well, I'm talking about while in office. No, that's there, the hypo. There, I, I, nothing could be done. That's your position. That is correct. Cansavoy lost. Each time he lost, he appealed, and the case kept going up and up and up, and the whole time, Trump didn't have to turn over his tax returns. In the very first court hearing, back in the fall of last year, Vance's lawyers argued that for Trump, a delay was a win. They were arguing that still when the case got to the U.S. Supreme Court in the late spring. Trump lost there, too. Consovoy delayed the reckoning some more. He went back to court with a new case and lost again and appealed again. We will hear a Trump v. Vance. By now, uh, the hearings are by phone because of the virus. Thank you, Your Honor, and and good morning. Judge Raymond Loyer asks if there's any request for documents Consovoy wouldn't consider overbroad. Is there a request for documents uh, in this case? That would not, in your view, be overbought? Well, 
I have to know. I think the answer is probably no, Your Honor, and here's why. We just go back. That's the problem. That's the problem. problem. Don't you see? You see the problem. (laughs) I I see why you're concerned. I'd like to try. You guessed it. Consovoy lost and appealed. And this Trump v. Vance investigation, it's just one of the cases over Trump business records that Consovoy's firm has worked on. There was an emolument suit brought by the governments of Virginia and Washington, D.C., alleging the president is unconstitutionally accepting money or benefits from foreign or domestic governments. Consovoy lost in the Fourth Circuit and is appealing. Then there were two cases involving congressional subpoenas, one to Trump's bankers, Deutsche Bank, and one to his accountants, Mazars USA. Consovoy also lost those cases at the district and appeals levels and also appealed to the Supreme Court. The court said the House could subpoena the president, but their requests had to meet a heightened standard. The legal wrangling is virtually certain to last past January, when these subpoenas expire, along with the 116th Congress. As much work as Consovoy has done in this area of Trump's finances, it's actually a relatively new line for him and his firm. Before he was known for his Trump work, he was known for his work on voting. So William Consovoy was one of the key lawyers in developing the strategy around a Supreme Court case called Shelby County v. Holder uh, in 2013. This is Christopher Wirth of the WNYC podcast, The United States of Anxiety. The Shelby case was a big test of a provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so they, they struck it down. And that made it impossible then to enforce this law, Section 5, which is still on the books, but there's no way to implement it now. It's considered one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation ever passed. But by five to four, the U.S. Supreme Court today took the teeth out of a law enacted nearly 50 years ago. The decision, which said the U.S. Justice Department no longer had to pre-approve voting changes that might suppress black votes, was a body blow to the Voting Rights Act. And a lot of people in the, you know, pro-voting rights community really, really felt that body blow. This election cycle, Consovoy is doing even more work on voting. So I spoke with Mark Elias. He's the lawyer on the Democratic side, working on voter suppression issues. And the way that he described him is, you know, Consovoy, even though he's not in all of these cases, he is acting, you know, in his words, as the field general in this battle. And his law firm is their army. It doesn't mean that they're in every case, but it appears that they are the cases that matter the most to the president and the RNC. Consovoy was the lawyer back in the spring of 2020 in Wisconsin, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against changes that made it easier to record votes during the pandemic. Wisconsin isn't the only state here. Consovoy was involved in a lawsuit in California, for example, where the state decided to mail ballots to every registered voter. Um, He was arguing against that. Um, In Nevada, the secretary of state there had decided to only open uh, one in-person polling site in each county. The Democrats had filed a lawsuit to open more polling sites, and Consovoy was arguing against that. He was involved in a case in Montana. He was involved in another case in Rhode Island. He's been involved in a number of cases over the past seven months. 
Consovoy has certainly gained prestige in conservative circles for all this work. And federal records show his firm has made over $2.5 million in counting from the campaign and the RNC for his legal work just in the past year. We don't know how much his firm has billed for the simultaneous work he's done on the president's private behalf— in Trump v. Vance, Trump v. Mazars, Trump v. Deutsche Bank, Trump v. the District of Columbia, Trump v. the Committee on Ways and Means, and so on. Neither the White House, nor the Trump Organization, nor Consovoy or his law firm, Consovoy McCarthy, answered our inquiries. So we are left with this. When Donald Trump sued his accountants to prevent them from releasing his tax returns to Congress— Consovoy McCarthy argued that the House was improperly engaged in, quote, law enforcement. When a law enforcement officer, the Manhattan DA, tried to investigate, Consovoy had a different argument. Here's Judge Chin of the Second Circuit. And so if, if, if the president were to commit a crime, no matter how heinous, whether he did it before he took office or whether he, took it, he did it after he took office— He could not be the subject of any even investigation. That's the position? Yes, until, uh, of course, Congress retains the impeachment power. But when impeachment came around, Trump's legal team, led there by Jay Sekulow, argued something else. That the articles of impeachment were, quote, a dangerous attack on the right of American people to freely choose their president. And the practical effect of Consovoy's legal claims on voting issues is to constrict the number of Americans who get to freely choose their president. Even when he loses, Consovoy has mastered what might be called Trump's art of litigation, which is to keep making legal arguments, no matter how far outside the mainstream, to use the judicial system against itself. As of this recording, the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't ruled about whether it will hear Trump v. Vance a second time. But for purposes of understanding the president's business records in time for this election, it doesn't matter. Consovoy has succeeded. He's run out the clock. We'll be right back. We're back. You're listening to Trump, Inc. And today, we're looking at how the Trump way of doing business has embedded itself into American democracy. Act 3. Pardon me. In May, something new showed up in the podcast carousel. Hi, this is Rod Blagojevich, and welcome to the Lightning Rod Podcast. This is my first podcast. Please bear with me. I've never done this before. Lightning Rod with Rod Blagojevich, the only podcast hosted by a former governor convicted of bribery and attempted extortion whose sentence was commuted by President Trump. That's not the official show description. Blagojevich walked out of prison in February. By May, he was sharing his story. I was sitting in prison watching the news and following his campaign in 2016. Once he was a Democrat, now Blagojevich calls himself a Trumpocrat. And I think he's a Trumpocrat to a lot of Democrats around the country, working people who the Democratic Party, today's Democratic Party, have uh, abandoned and have forgotten. 
Blagojevich has history with Trump. Between his arrest and his trial, he was a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice. Your Harry Potter facts were not accurate. Who did the research? There was not a uh, specific direction to do the research on Harry Potter, but the uh, inability to learn the product. After he went to prison on a 14-year sentence, and after Trump was sworn in as president, Rod's wife, Patty, campaigned on TV to get Trump to free her husband. She was on Fox a lot. She linked special counsel Robert Mueller to her husband's prosecutor, Patrick Fitzgerald. She accused the authorities of spying on her husband in much the same way, she claimed, they spied on Trump's allies. The latest revelations about how uh, the FISA court and how that they used uh, slander was essentially opposition research slander against the president to, you know, to spy on him. And just like the allegation that they used um, against my husband to get six wiretaps on all of our phone lines was... The ability to make pardons and commutations is one of the few presidential powers with almost no constraints. Trump likes unconstrained power. And every year he's been in office, he's found more and more cases he thinks are worthy of clemency. Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who defied a court order to stop the use of racial profiling. Military officers convicted of war crimes. Ranchers who committed arson on public land. He sees this as a tool for, you know, expanding his authority, expanding his influence, winning political points, making his enemies' heads explode and the like. Jack Goldsmith was assistant attorney general in the George W. Bush administration. He's a professor now at Harvard. Prompted by the pardons for ideological allies and sycophants, Goldsmith assembled all of Trump's pardons and commutations in a spreadsheet. I just wanted to try to figure out in in an objective way as possible what was different about Trump. Not knowing what they would find, Goldsmith and his collaborator Matthew Gluck created one column for pardons that advance a political agenda, one for cases with personal connections to Trump, one for TV appearances like Patty Blagojevich on Fox, and the fourth and last one for cases brought to the attention of the president by celebrities. And and so what, what was your overall finding then? Basically, Trump has issued 39 pardons or commutations of sentences, and an astonishing 34 of those satisfied one of those criteria. And the general, in other words, 34 of the 39 pardons were self-serving in some way. Since my interview with Jack Goldsmith, Trump gave clemency to five additional people, mostly for drug offenses. Typically, in the past, presidents have pardoned criminals who show real remorse or were punished too harshly. It's rare to pardon an ally. And that's really the remarkable finding here. I mean, as I say, some presidents in the past, especially at the very end of their terms, have issued self-serving pardons. But those are exceptional. Trump has made a practice of it. And he did it before the end of his term. So there was Paul Pogue, a Texas construction executive who was pardoned for tax crimes after his family gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Trump-aligned political groups. Media baron Conrad Black was convicted of obstruction and fraud and extradited to Canada. After he wrote an adoring book about Trump, he got a pardon. Kim Kardashian took up the cause of Alice Marie Johnson, who was convicted of nonviolent drug crimes. After Trump freed her, Johnson spoke at his convention. But by the grace of God and the compassion of President Donald John Trump, I stand before you tonight. The pardon power is a costless act to him, personally. It's literally involves signing a piece of paper. So 
whatever he gets in return is in some kind of very reductive way more than what it took him to do it, especially since he's so shameless and he doesn't care about the political outcry. In some cases, showing clemency may do a lot more for Trump. When the president issued a commutation to Roger Stone, he shielded a key ally in the 2016 campaign and someone who became a target of special counsel Robert Mueller. Stone said things that led us to believe this, that Mueller was pressuring Stone to reveal instances in which Trump had lied to the special counsel, that Stone kept quiet, and this was basically a payoff for his quietude. Now, we don't know that. There's some circumstantial evidence pointing to it, but it shows the extraordinary danger of the pardon being able to use essentially to obstruct justice and protect the president. Even the suggestion of a pardon may have an effect. A top Mueller prosecutor, Andrew Weissman, believes that Trump's public dangle of a pardon for Paul Manafort influenced Manafort's decision to stop sharing information with law enforcement. The only real constraint on the use of pardons is public opinion. People still remember the stink around Bill Clinton's pardon of tax evader and Democratic Party donor Mark Rich. Goldsmith, who just co-authored a book called After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, believes that if Trump loses in the November election, he won't hesitate to pardon friends and family. Anyone who may be subject to an investigation by the next administration for federal crimes, members of his family, for example, and others, he could just issue a blanket pardon for all of that and therefore take away the possibility of criminal prosecution for those federal crimes. And most significantly, he could pardon himself. Uh, he could issue a so-called self-pardon, which has never been done. And frankly, no president has hinted at it. Trump has claimed that he has the power to do this. He tweeted in 2018, as has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. But why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? There is no case law on this. A president pardoning himself is so unthinkable, not one has ever tried. This episode was reported and produced by Meg Kramer and Katherine Sullivan and edited by Nick Varshaver. Sound design and original scoring by Jared Paul. The theme music and additional music is by Hannes Brown. This is our last episode before the election, but we'll be back in your feeds soon with all new Trump Inc. reporting. Get the latest by signing up for our newsletter at our website, trumpincpodcast.org. Special thanks this week to Genevieve Smith, James Walsh, Charlotte Klein, Maya Hibbett, and the whole team at New York Magazine. You can find a link to our massive list of Trump profiteers in the show notes or at nymag.com. For more on attorney William Consovoy, check out Christopher Worth's reporting for a recent episode of the WNYC podcast, The United States of Anxiety. Thanks also to Dave McKinney and former acting pardon attorney Larry Coopers and former pardon attorney Margaret Love. Matt Collette is the executive producer of Trump, Inc. Emily Botin is WNYC's vice president for original programming. And Steve Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. I'm Ilya Meritz. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Thank you for listening.